Well, hey, everyone, it's 2020. That's fun to say. Anyway, I hope you had a chance to listen to our guests from 2019. I can tell you I learned a lot from them. In fact, I can point to at least one piece of business we won by using the knowledge we gained from our guests. I can also tell you that I steal some of their lines in meetings, and it makes me sound very smart. So let's get going with what we hope to see change in 2020. You're listening to Marketing Upheaval from Creative Outhouse. Well, we're calling this episode, What What to Look Out For in 2020. Yeah, it's not terribly original, is it? Which brings me to the first thing to look out for. And this is something that I hope will change. Let me tell you a story. I went to a conference last year and I saw something that exemplified what I don't like about where marketing is going. You know, like you, I'm equally fascinated and confused by our changing world. A lot of changes are great. Some, eh, not so much. Anyway, I'm at this conference and one presenter showed two digital ads for a nursing degree. One had a photo with a blue filter and a smiling hospital worker with the headline, advance your nursing career. The other had a different hospital worker with a blue tinted photo and a headline that said, online MSN in nursing. Then he grinned and he asked the audience, which of these ads do you think perform better? People shouted their theories for one or the other. The one on the right's more targeted. The one on the left shows more diversity. Meanwhile, all I could think was, they're both equally boring. I just see it too often. Invisible creative. It's not horrible. It's just nothing. It has no point of view, no human connection. It's just a data point, a stock shot, and an hour of someone who has Adobe Suite's time. What causes it? I think fear. Fear and the wrong idea of how to use data. The fear, well, that's obvious. It comes from the fact that marketing jobs from the CMO down aren't always the most secure jobs in the world. So a lot of times people operate in this state of fear. And when you're in a state of fear, all your decisions are going to be risk averse. And if you work for an agency, you know what I'm talking about. How many times have you been trying to get work approved and your client is making decisions exclusively based on what she thinks her boss might like, and she's scared of her boss. Has that situation ever brought about a groundbreaking piece of communication? So rather than make a judgment call, we try to justify decisions by throwing out numbers. That's in case someone asks why they made a certain decision, they can say, it wasn't me, it was the numbers. Look, of course you need data to make a smart decision. I'm not saying that. But these days, we don't just use data, we hide behind it. Like that guy who thought that because one boring ad did 10% better than the other boring ad, that it was a great ad. It wasn't, it was crap. The truth is, we'll never have the actual data you need. And that is this, you need to know, what's it going to take for everyone that I want to buy this thing that I'm selling? But we're never gonna know that exactly. And if you're doing something truly original or groundbreaking, There won't be much data to support it because it's not been done before. Every great accomplishment, even in data-rich environment, requires some risk. Eventually, you're going to have to take a chance and pick something. That's why the best of what we do is still part science and part art. We take the relevant data we have, and then we create something that connects and engages with people in a profound way. So what can we do in 2020 to make the work we do better? 
first, let's scare ourselves more. If the thing you're moving forward with doesn't scare you at least 10 to 20% on your personal meter, then you need to go back and try something else. Let's go with ideas that are insightful and connect. Make people want to share them, talk about them, buy or believe whatever it is you're saying. Let's create work that has a point of view, that challenges, that looks different than everyone else's boring crap. That's what I wish for for you and me in 2020, an age of creative thinking and risk-taking. More ideas on that later on. So let's move on with what we learned to help us in 2020. This show is about the changes in marketing, but really the changes in marketing are societal changes as well. The biggest changes aren't about technology, although technology fuels them. The real changes are about people, how we communicate, how we get information and entertainment, and our expectations of the brands we follow. Brad McAfee, the CEO of Pornavelli, talked about why brands have become so important to us. Check this out. There's less and less comfort or belief or trust in some of the greatest institutions, right? And so when you when you feel like that is waning a little bit, then people turn to the brands or organizations or institutions they're familiar with. And they may ask for those organizations to step in where they might find a void, right? So you see these brands, and we've seen this over the last several years, where maybe a, a state takes on a piece of legislation and what their employees do, they go straight to that employer and say, we absolutely do not like that. And all of a sudden you start to see that the employer is not going to expand in that state. It's not going to have any more conventions in that state. And all of a sudden it becomes a big issue, right? And it's brands using their scale and a little bit of their power of influence to really tackle some some issues at hand. So I think one part is just changing dynamics on, at the macro level. Then we're seeing a lot of things happening, like if you look at employees as one example, and this could be the changing dynamics. We have a lot more millennials, right? By 2020, 50% of the workforce will be millennials. But if you look at that group, right, there's a little bit more of an interest on, I want to go to work with an organization that I believe aligns with my own personal values, the crazy part about it is when we've done some of the survey work, we find that people will actually take less pay to go to an organization that aligns to their own values. So you see that the employee side. And then on the flip side, you have individuals, organization or um, uh, consuming audiences or customers say, I would switch brands to a brand that has my same value or has a bigger, broader purpose. And then on the flip side, you have like 79% of those that we've researched that I will boycott a brand if it doesn't support my values. So all of a sudden, I think you're starting to see more tangible examples of people saying, hey, I'm going to vote with my pocketbook as well. And so you've got this void that people are asking to have filled. You have employees kind of wanting somebody to fill it and also to feel more inspired at work. And you have a consuming group out there that's saying, hey, don't forget about me. I'm going to vote with my dollars. I'm either going to vote you up or maybe vote you out. I really love this quote because it sort of encapsulated why brands are so important now. I suppose our government institutions and churches aren't providing us what we need. So we're trying to make brands fit into our value system. And now each of us has the ability to express our feelings and values to a broad audience. Think about that. Humans have always been social creatures, but a hunter forager may have had to communicate with what, 150 people in his entire life. 
This new version of us can communicate with thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of people at the same time. Now, in modern times, this type of mass communication used to be the realm exclusively of brands that would send out mass messages that basically said, this is who we are, like it or not. They had the podium and everyone else was a member of the audience. Now, each of us has a podium to the point where regular people have a say in your brand. Most of our guests have talked about that in one way or another, like Lee George, founder of Freedom Marketing in Washington, D.C. For the longest time, companies thought brands were about them, right? And that customers were there to help brands with their mission, right? Help make us money, buy our stuff. Well, I think the internet and social media and a lot of other factors have completely changed that relationship and consumers are in control. We know more about a brand before we decide to buy something. We have the ability to talk back in a way we never had before. Brands have to realize that their brand needs to be helping customers with their mission and their purpose, mm -hmm. not the other way around. When you tap in, that's why I think brands need to be at the intersection of customer's passion yeah. and a brand's purpose, because your brand cannot be about you because no one cares, right? Mm -hmm. People want something to believe in. They want to support a cause or a mission or a purpose that is personally meaningful to them. So we'll probably see this notion of audience shaping a brand continue to evolve. But of course, you have to take it all with a bit of common sense. Every day, there's more and more of a conversation about the dangers of the cancel culture. And the debate is going on now. We've seen a lot of brands underreact and overreact to bad comment. And and the truth is, sometimes people get hyped up about things that end up being not a big deal. Here's a good example from Alan Wilson, the founder of Tripwire Interactive, a gaming company with more than 10 million users. We had a classic example, must be seven or eight years ago, which was a real sort of really hammered that lesson home to us. When we released the first uh, DLC weapon pack, for Killing Floor 1, DLC downloadable content, and ask people to pay for it. They're, they were side grades from other weapons. It's not going to give you an advantage. It's a co-op game anyway. You're all on the same side. But on our forums at that time, the, the day or two after we, re we released that pack, there were one or two people in the building beginning to think, oh, God, have we done something terrible? Because those people were out with pitchforks and, you know... Um, because they had to pay for it? Uh, just because we were evil, money-grabbing ah. dirtbags. Uh, <laughs> I would, I'd kind of got used to this, and I sat down and I counted. There was about twenty people on the forums who were who got, I say, the pitchforks and the um, and the pitchforks and torches out for us, and, and I had to point out to people that we, in the time that those twenty people were screaming blue murder on the forums, we sold over a hundred thousand units of this DLC, and you're going, guys, twenty people hate you, a hundred thousand people love you. We need to get a balance here. Who knows. Maybe this year we'll start to establish some societal rules about what's a crisis and what isn't, what to get angry about and what to let slide. But it is an election year, so I'm guessing that might not happen. But one can hope. You know, side note here, sidetrack a little bit to talk about the 2020 election. We talked to Brett Bruin, who was the president of the Global Situation Room and the former advisor to President Obama. His advice on how to manage bad social media be authentic. And the really interesting thing, remember I said he was an advisor to President Obama. He pointed out how President Trump was someone who actually does this authentic thing pretty well. Check this out. Well, I, I think it is this idea. And, and you know, it's, it's ironic because Patrick Jepson, that former chief of staff to Princess Di and I had 
conversations about how, in some respects, obviously not in, in all respects, Donald Trump had the appearance of authenticity and one not dissimilar from Princess Diane. And by that, we meant you had someone who was speaking seemingly in an authentic way, seemingly in a direct way, whereas Hillary Clinton, whether you like her or not, was much more measured in her comments. She was stiffer and and structured in what she was saying, which does make it more difficult to resonate. And, you know, I have talked about before how brands, candidates, it'd almost be like the, the skyscrapers in Mexico City. It's less about being a very cemented and strong brand as it is having that sway. If you want to take a lesson from the Trump playbook, it is the ability to, not everything he says is perfect, nor should for companies or for other candidates, everything they say be perfect. There is an attractiveness to those errors and and to something that is less than polished or refined. Obviously, Trump takes it to an extreme, but I do believe that as we see everything today, we expect to see everything today because of um, social media, because of that constant presence of, you know, selfies and filming and do, you know, capturing everything we do. We want more authentic experiences. I talk about how information is less institutionalized now. And so, you know, the old concept, and this comes back to crisis management, the notion that you write up your press release and then you deliver it to the news outlet who then gives it to the news anchor who incorporates it into their evening broadcast is pretty outdated. You have to be able to communicate this across social media. You have to be able to communicate this in uh, a way where someone else can come with a phone and capture information that, or images that, that would show that you aren't being fully transparent or that, that you perhaps have some level of hypocrisy in your comments and and so that authenticity is is not just a nice to do, it is a need to do. Wow, I just had an aha moment. You're right. People crave authenticity more and more. And here we have a president who mostly speaks in an unscripted, unpolished way, and he tweets in an unscripted, unpolished way. And because he's doing that, people are more willing to forgive when he, let's say, is less than accurate. Absolutely. So staying with some of the things Brett talked about, he's a crisis manager. And we talked about how everybody has podiums, and that includes employees. He talked about how problems often come from the bottom up, yet they're always treated from the top down. So this democratization of marketing and communications goes for your employees as well. Here's what he said about that. How do you ensure that from the mid-levels, even down to the the lowest levels where these problems are first identified, you're building capability, not just training them on crisis response. This is what I do not get about crisis management 101. It it is predicated on the idea that the knowledge comes from the C-suite and and then filters down. And yet the problems often come from the factory floor and work their way up. And people are reluctant to speak up about issues that they have identified when they're not empowered, when they don't feel like they understand that the tools or the response. And that's why I really advocate this inclusive uh, process of building with your team the infrastructure 
and countermeasures for uh, those crises because your team will understand better what they should look for, how that crisis response works, and then ultimately, I think, be more likely to identify problems, more willing to identify those problems. So whether it's on your personal social media or at work, everyone seems to be marketing all the time. And this universality of marketing is why the role of chief marketing officer is changing more than any other. You think about it, every department needs to incorporate a level of marketing into what it does. Every person in every company or organization broadcasts new ideas, opinions, perpetually. Marketing is part of every company from the initial contact to customer experience, to operations, to customer service, everything which means the role of chief marketing officer has gotten very, very complicated. And companies are going one of two ways with it. The first way is that the CMO has an extraordinary amount of responsibilities, and we've seen that. They just get more and more stuff piled on him or her so that every facet of the company and every person's podium falls under the CMO. The other direction that we're seeing is that some companies are eliminating the CMO role altogether. They're recognizing that every department and every person is responsible for marketing. The downside of the second option is that marketing isn't something you just pick up through osmosis. It's a specialty that's learned and developed over time. I was joking about that with uh, Tim Smith, who's the president of chemistry. He used the phrase, Sally, you've been here for a while. You do the marketing. That's not how great work gets done. Great CMOs aren't discovered. They become great through years of growing their knowledge and honing their abilities. And we talked to several CMOs last year, all brilliant. Go back and check those out. One of those was Jeff Perkins, CMO of Park Mobile, one of the fastest growing companies in the country. He talks about how CMOs can gain more credibility in an organization, a concept he calls velocity marketing. And one of the things I noticed uh, with marketing leaders is that there was a tendency to overthink and there was a tendency to be too cautious, to go too slowly. And I took the opposite approach. And what I found is that I rather get stuff done quickly and put some runs on the board and show that that I'm effective in what I do and gain the trust of other people in the organization that, oh, Jeff is really cranking through stuff before I start taking on some bigger projects. Now, I was at a company a few years ago, and I started around the same time as another marketing leader. And we were the same level. And she was uh, she was excellent in her job, but she was very strategic. And she came in and she immediately had this long-term vision that she was trying to execute against. And I took kind of an opposite approach where I saw some immediate quick wins. I said, well, we need, we need a brochure for this because we're going to a trade show. And hey, we need to redesign this page on the website. Oh, we need to tweak this banner campaign. We need to update this messaging. And we're, those were all things that I knew we can get done very quickly. So my first three months in the company, I was just putting all these points on the board. And people were like, wow, that guy's getting a lot done. God, That's amazing. Meanwhile, my counterpart was doing all the right things building a framework, interviewing agencies, building the team, putting a lot of foundational pieces in place for her big initiative. But everyone was looking at what I was doing and saying, hey, that Jeff's doing great work. Let's give him more work to do. Yeah. Let's get him on this task force. Let's put him in this new business pitch. I got kind of 
the perception in the company of being someone who was highly effective because I was getting a lot of stuff done because I took this velocity marketing approach and I was putting a lot of runs on the board. My counterpart, unfortunately, had the perception of someone who was too slow, uh, ineffective. Yeah. You know, you, you know, you're in trouble when when executives in the company are saying, well, what's that person doing? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I really don't understand what they're doing. Uh, and what it teaches you is that you have to build credibility with the organization as a marketer. Not everyone understands how the sausage is made mm-hmm. in, in marketing. And so if you come in and you're just kind of going to go into a black box and start doing marketing frameworks and, and hire a bunch of expensive consultants and go on whiteboards and do a bunch of stuff, but a company is not seeing the impact you are going to be at risk very quickly in your tenure. Whereas if you look at what marketing could accomplish and you plot out, well, these are things that we can do really quickly. These are things that are going to take a much longer period of time. Do the things that you can knock out to show that you know what you're doing, to show that you're capable, because that will buy you the goodwill and the trust from your organization to do those big things down the road. Now, I think this is important Because as an agency, we have to find ways to make CMOs look good. So we need to always be thinking about and recommending quick wins for them, which is part of a bigger effort agencies need to take part in if they're going to survive. The idea that marketing is part of every facet of a company hasn't escaped big consulting agencies like Deloitte, Pricewaterhouse, Ernst & Young. More and more, they're doing advertising and PR for clients. They have the ear of the CEO, the CIO, the COO, and now the CMO. Why? Because consultancies have always focused on the bottom line in their pitch. They're invited to the table, not as people who are good at marketing, but as people who are good at business. And this is something that I think ad agencies and PR agencies have lost over time. They used to be the business consultants, and now they're treated more like vendors. That's something Tim Smith, the president of chemistry, and I spoke about when we talked about the AOR versus project-based yeah, it's tough. I mean, honestly, it's getting tougher every day to make make money in, in our world. Everybody's saying the hourly is dead, that fee-based, the way our ad, ad agencies do it is dead. You shouldn't do it, but nobody really has a better answer. And in the end, regardless if you're taking equity or any sort of deal structure that you're doing, you're still basing it on how much time you're going to spend and what the effort's really worth. Um, I think the bigger threat is honestly – from the brands and how they're starting to work with agencies more, which is heavily um, project-based versus versus uh, AORs. Seeing a lot of more project and even projects saying, we want to do a programmatic digital campaign. Okay, well, that's the assignment. I get that. But what was, mm-hmm. the, what was the goal? Because yeah. <laughs> you may be completely off. And we're even seeing now that we have two clients now that, that are big big brands and and one of them is paying fees for just the ideas of of here's a here's the product here's eight agencies we're all going to give you a pitch fee and then whoever kind of gets it will go from there it's it's tough and we've got clients that you know you're in a roster of of agencies yeah. and, and you're yeah. still Seen you that. win the pitch and then you're still pitching within the pitch, like fighting against other agencies. As agencies, we always have to remember that we're trying to solve business problems for clients. Yes, sometimes we get in the weeds about the types of media, the customer journey, 
purpose, audience dialogue, understanding the emotions, and lots of other aspects and specifics of PR and advertising to help connect with our audience. But these are all part of a larger goal. And always remember, that larger goal is about revenue. Yeah, I know that sounds cold, but honestly, do you think brands would really care about anything else if sales continue to climb consistently? They wouldn't. Take our company. I spent most of my career steeped in behavior change, understanding why people make decisions and creating work that uses that knowledge to motivate people to take some action. And I talk a lot about people's internal motivations, but honestly, in the end, we have to present and look at the numbers that matter to clients. And the ones that matter the most are the ones with the dollar signs. To that end, I wonder if there's going to be a counter trend to all the social requirements we have for our brands. Now, I know that's not what everyone else is talking about when they talk about more purpose-led brands, but maybe sometimes customer perceptions and the customer journeys aren't always as easily affected. I'll give you an example. I live in Atlanta, which is the home base of Chick-fil-A. Now, you may have heard over the last few years, Chick-fil-A has had a lot of bad press because they've donated to organizations that are anti-LGBTQ. Well, in the time that this controversy has stirred, Chick-fil-A has gone from the seventh to the third largest fast food chain in terms of revenue. According to one executive I spoke to a few months ago, one of their biggest challenges right now is how to deal with the excess of customers. And yeah, I understand that there are a lot of great branding efforts, internal motivators, emotional, egocentric, habitual, all those things that get people to Chick-fil-A in the first place. But maybe it isn't 100% about that. Maybe sometimes it's as simple as people like Chick-fil-A sandwiches, And that's the beginning and the end of the whole relationship. I pay you for a sandwich, you provide the sandwich, and then I drive off. Done. Yes, some touchy-feely stuff got them there in the first place. But do they really need to know every last thing you do? Yeah, some people care, but most people don't. They're too busy managing their own lives to follow the supply chain of every single thing they buy. And as Alan Wilson pointed out, yeah, you're going to have a few naysayers, and they're going to be loud, but in the end, Your sales numbers or donations or whatever KPIs you set forth that deal with money, those are the ones that matter the most. Those are the ones you watch. Yeah, I know that's callous. And let me be clear, it's not all about the money, but it is mostly about the money. Companies need money to operate, to pay people, to make a difference, to give choices and flexibility and weather storms, to do most things money is required. So my advice is when you're talking or presenting to a client, remember that you're always tying something back to revenue. The more we as marketers focus on revenue, the more our clients will trust us. And the more clients trust us, the more risks they'll be willing to take. And that means the better creative we will all produce. See how I did that? Full circle. Speaking of revenue, I got to go work. Also, I'll invite you to go to our website at creativeouthouse.com and see if we can do some of that great 2020 work together. So let's cue up the closing music. Thank you, Rusty. Our next episode is with the brilliant digital trend expert, Katrin Zimmerman. She just blew me away. So you got to check out that episode. And also, if you haven't listened to our first 20-something episodes, check those out. They're worth like a PhD in marketing at least. Thanks for listening to Marketing Upheaval. Our producer is Susan Cooper. Until the next episode, remember, if the current state of marketing has got you confused, don't worry, it'll all change. See ya.